So as Ben already mentioned, Ephesians chapter 5 would be a good time to turn to that right now. Uh, If you did not bring a copy of the Bible, there is one in front of you in the pew. Uh, It's a black book, and it's page 978. I was thinking, Ben, about having a sword drill this morning. How many of you even know what a sword drill is? A long, long time ago, if you've been in Sunday school for any, any length of time, it, w- it was a, a deal where uh, kids would get their Bibles, and they had to have their Bibles closed, and they'd be standing there. There were kind of rules to this thing, and then the teacher would mention what the scripture verse was, and the kids would all get set. Everybody was nervous and open, and whoever won, whoever got it first, won it and got to stand up and read it, so... Yay. <laughs> yeah, so, um, but there were two problems I realized while we're not doing that this today uh, is because um, how do you do that with devices and phones? It's a whole new world. And um, also, Eleanor would always win, so everybody would be mad. So, um, so we're going we're gonna to read uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 17, so if you could follow along with me. I also feel like I do need to preface this, is that there's an, um, a record number of therefores in this passage. Um, there are four of them, and as, as has been mentioned before, is that whenever you see a therefore, you have to find out what it's there for. It means that this, what's about to come, there's something that preceded it that you need to know. Um, most of them you will know today, but Ben's going to have to fill you in on the first one because it's the very first word in the text. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 17. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right, and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light." Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. 
Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Thank you, Dwight. Those sword drills, I mean, I I think, how many of you just started to break out in a cold sweat at the thought (laughs) of the reward being you get to stand up in front of everyone and try to read scripture? And I remember an Old Testament passage uh, with the the Shiites that I got to read, and I didn't pronounce it correctly. (laughs) I will never forget that. Here I am before you, reading the Word of God once again, being willing to walk in transparency, so pray for me. Paul uses a number of contrasts, we've seen them in this letter, to to help us see our our new life in him. And just a a few that come to mind. Chapter 2, he said, you were dead in your sin, now you are alive in Christ. Contrast. He said, you were separated, you were alienated, now you are brought near through Christ. You were orphans, you are now adopted, would be a contrast from chapter 1. Put off the old self, chapter 4, put off the old self, put on the new self, created in the likeness of God. And here in chapter 5, you were darkness, now you are light. Notice that he doesn't say you walked in darkness. He says you were darkness, but also says you are light in the Lord. And that's what Jesus said. He's really quoting him from Matthew 5, 14, when Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Pretty amazing because Jesus is called the light of the world, the one who came into the world to reveal truth, to make truth known. He would, and light shines most brightly in the darkness. So amazing for Jesus, the light of the world, to say to his followers, to those who believed in him, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden in the same way. Let your light shine before others that they may see your life, your good works, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus connected who we are to then how we should live. And that's what all the therefores are there for for Paul. How do you think he learned to speak the way he spoke, to write the way he wrote? All the therefores are what he's been building in the first part of the letter, the first three chapters. Here's who you are because of who God is and what he's done. Therefore, this is what life should look like. We've got to get that order correct. If we jump right to the back half of this letter, like we're doing today, if you're just entering in and we're taking it out of, out of full context, because we're not reading the entire letter every time we gather, we expect that you would do that and have done that and would continue to receive it that way. We do not want to take God's word out of context as if the answer is work harder, shine more brightly. That's not what the word says. It says, let your light shine. Actually, the work we have to do is to not cover it up. It's who we are in Christ, not what we must do in Christ. Our life changes because of who he is and what he's done. It will look differently. That's the emphasis of the message. That's the relational side of believing 
then our behavior follows, not the other way around. Here's a more subtle contrast from this chapter, but I think just as striking and one I'd like to focus on with our time this morning. I think it's quite linked to walking as children of light and being alive instead of dead. Verse 14, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So Paul seems to be quoting from somewhere, but there's not an exact match. Many commentators believe it's from Isaiah 60, verse 1, which says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Close, but not an exact match. We don't have one. There's some evidence that that statement of Paul's was then spoken at someone's baptism. Arise, as they're coming up out of the water. Arise. And Christ will shine on you. Awaken to the newness of life of what God has already done in you that this baptism is now symbolizing. For those of you who are astute, you'll notice that we have our baptismal full today. It's not the easiest thing to fill. I don't know why it was an afterthought when this building was constructed, but it is not plumbed in. And so we fill it with a hose or like Kent did yesterday, bucket after bucket from the hot water tank to try to get it at least somewhat warm and not 48 degrees. Someone will be getting baptized today, likely not during this service, unless that's you, unless you're coming in and now maybe cold sweats are happening all over again as you go, you know what, I've never responded to the invitation to be submersed through the, the picture of Life from death. Maybe you were uh, doused or sprinkled as a child. Praise God. Absolutely celebrate those traditions. This act of baptism does not make you more holy. It symbolizes what God has already done. But if you haven't experienced it, it can be life-changing. It's a significant moment, and I invite you to that. We have extra clothes and towels, so you don't have that excuse uh, there's other excuses you have, like the water is lukewarm and you weren't prepared. Uh, but you know what? We can leave it filled for the coming week if God stirs and you want to respond in that way. I invite you to that. Perhaps that was this statement was said. Maybe we would say it today. Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ is shining on you. This is what the gospel does. Or should we say this is what the gospel is radical transformation from death to life, from darkness to light, from asleep to awake. Remember the blind man in John chapter 9? Do you remember his testimony after Jesus gave him sight and they were inquiring, who is this man? And he says, well, I, I don't know much, but what I do know is I was blind, but now I see That should be the testimony of everyone who comes to put their faith into Jesus as we are coming to know more fully who he is. That man didn't know much of what Jesus had come to do or what he was going to do. But what he did know, he could proclaim 100% true. I met Jesus and I have been changed. And for that man, he would never be the same. Paul had a similar experience, didn't he? Although Jesus had to first blind him in order that he could spiritually see. His sight would be restored. But Paul would clearly proclaim the very same testimony. You know what? I was blind. I was blind to the truth of who 
God is through Jesus Christ. I was persecuting his church. I was blind, but now I see. I encountered Jesus and he transformed my life. I was essentially dead, now I'm alive. I was asleep, now I'm awake, right? Those contrasts he would have proclaimed. And Paul made it his life mission to help all peoples come to see the same. And yet, when Paul says here, awake, when he's, wherever he's drawing from, whatever he's quoting, awake, you who are asleep, wake up. This is not an evangelistic wake up. Though Paul's aim was to help all peoples who did not know Jesus come to see him, he is writing this letter to the church, to the church in Ephesus, those who had already had their blindness removed, the scales fall, had come to put their faith in Jesus. And it's, it's different than his, you were dead. He's reminding them who they were, what God has done. You were dead, you are now alive. You were separated, now you're brought in. Very important, we can seem to drift from those realities of our identity. But here he says, wake up to the church. Wake up, you sleepers. Maybe Paul wasn't quoting Isaiah. In fact, I think more likely, maybe he had both in mind, but I think he had the prophet Jonah in mind. Jonah was a believer in God. God called into his life and gave him a very specific call and commission that Jonah did not want a part of. So what did he do? He ran the other direction. He got on a ship to Tarsus, and God would not let him go that easily. He sent a storm upon that ship. But Jonah had climbed into the deepest part, as if being on a ship in the opposite direction of the call of God wasn't enough. He had to crawl into the deepest part of the ship, and he went to sleep. Can't you just picture him there with whatever bag or pillow he could find to cover up his head and just fall asleep? And in Jonah 1, 6, the captain of that ship comes to Jonah as the sailors believe that they are going to die and are crying out to whatever God they believe in to save them. And he goes to Jonah and he says, what do you mean, you sleeper? I love that. Paraphrase. How could you possibly be sleeping right now? We are going to die. Arise, he says. Arise and call out to your God and perhaps that God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. How could you be sleeping at a time like this? Wake up. In fact, that storm was God's mercy. In fact, the, the large fish that would swallow him was actually God's grace. I'm not here to preach Jonah. I've already done that. But God pursued Jonah and would not let him off the hook. I think this is exactly what Paul has in mind when he says, Awake to the church. Awake, O sleeper. Arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. There is still hope, but you are asleep. So we've received and embraced this whole letter. It's the right posture before God, eternal words. So here we are again. Is it possible that we are asleep, somehow sleepwalking through life, blind, deadened to the reality, the true reality of what is happening around us and amongst us and the urgency of the times that we live in. You know, just a couple weeks ago, after we put the kids down to bed, we were sitting down watching a show, and not too long after, we heard these heavy footsteps down our stair and then into the living room. Not, not the soft, sneaky footsteps of the seven-year-old who's having a hard time falling asleep and is 
creeping into the room. No, heavy footsteps. And so we turn, and there's Ella, our seven-year-old, standing with kind of glassy eyes just at the, at the doorway. And we turn and we say, yes, Ella, no response. Are you okay, Ella? Mum, some form of mumbling. Do you need something, Ella? And she's mumbling. And it just clicked at that moment. She's sleepwalking. And so I said, Ella, you're asleep. Go back to bed. And she turned and went right up the stairs and went right back to sleep. We checked on her. She was out. Sure enough, the next morning, I asked her if she recalled that, and she had no recollection of that. And so when I described it to her, she completely denied it. No way, Dad. There was no, there was no way that she, in her mind, could have been upright, eyes open, talking, even if it was a mumble, and have no recollection, be completely unconscious to the reality of the world. And I wonder if that's our first response to Paul. Wake up, church. Paul, we're awake. What do you mean? No, we're not asleep. And if Paul demanded proof that you are fully awake, what would you give him? Perhaps we need to receive this Perhaps we need to be convicted by it. Conviction of God's word of truth does not come without encouragement. That would be condemnation. That would be what the enemy would want to speak. We can rightly be convicted with great hope because right in that word, if we are sleepwalking through the reality, the spiritual reality of our, our world, and we are convicted by that, wake up, we need to be awoken. Right in the same promise is Christ will shine on you. There is hope spoken. There is light given. And so we can receive it, even if it's a convicting reminder or exhortation. Let me paraphrase the next verse, verse 15. Wake up, O sleeper. You're wandering through life, hardly aware of reality, with very little intentionality. Time is short, and there is a spiritual war waging, and you're sleepwalking right through. You are no longer blind, You are no longer darkness. You are no longer dead. Christ has given you light, life, and sight. Live like it. This has been Paul's primary aim throughout his letter as he gives these exhortations, these imperatives to live like this, not like this. That's why the therefores are therefore, because he's built the argument of who we are in Christ. He's after our hearts, not the work of our hands. He's not in behavior modification and his whole belief transformation. Remember who you are, therefore live like this. Paul knows that if we, the church, would truly be awoken to the reality that he's been proclaiming, the reality of the spiritual world, that everything would be different. Everything would change. The world would change through the church. Now, do you, do you remember the movie Matrix? My friend Lars and I were discussing this when we consider the potential sleepwalking nature of the church today, us included, as we make it personal. Do we need to be awoken? And, and Lars said, I, I, just, I remember it's like the matrix. It's like we're all just plugged in to some machine and we have a dreamlike reality that we know nothing about. Spoiler alert. Can we do that? It's been 20 years. And I'm not saying run off to watch this movie. I'm not advocating for it. But if you haven't seen the movie, you've probably seen plenty of memes about it. 
It is a picture of coming to an awakeness of reality. Neo, the main character, has two awakening experiences. The first is simply realizing that he is actually plugged into a machine that is sustaining his life while he is being forced into an eternal dream that he thinks is the reality. And so are all other people who have not escaped the matrix. Well, his second awakening comes when he actually starts to see the reality while in the dream, entering into the virtual reality world, he starts to see it as the very matrix that it is, the falseness of it. And it's at that moment where he gains a whole new sight, he has a whole new power. He can seemingly do anything because it's not the real world that he once thought. He's been awoken to it. Anyway, it's a picture. If that's not helpful, just let that float away. Is this kind of sleepwalking blindness possible for the church today? If Paul is saying, wake up to the church, the church in Ephesus that is so close to the time of when Jesus walked the earth, and yet somehow they've become deadened or numbed or asleep, and he's saying, wake up, then how could it not be something that we must receive? I, I wonder if the church in the West today is largely sleepwalking, if not dead. Wake up to the reality of what Christ has done. Be reminded of what you have believed. See with new eyes and sight that you have been given. Yes, we were blind, but now in Christ we see. So if you're tracking with me up to this point, you're saying, so see what? What are we talking about? What are we needing to be awakened to? It's what Paul has been teaching. He'll move on in chapter 6. We're not there today, but he'll proclaim that there are two kingdoms. Wake up to this reality. There are two kingdoms in our world. There's the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and there is the kingdom of the enemy, the kingdom of Satan, and they are at war with each other. That's the reality that Paul would want us to wake up to. He'll say in chapter 6, put on the full armor of God because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, verse 12, 6, 12, but against the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul has already hinted at these two kingdoms in chapter 2, he says, You were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. All those who would not take the word of God and apply it, Satan is at work in them. And it's his world, ultimately. He's, he's the prince of this spiritual kingdom. But there's another kingdom that we have been awoken to. We were dead to it, now we're alive. We are separated, now we have brought ne- we've been brought near all through Jesus. That's what Paul is trying to wake up the church to, is the reality of these two opposing kingdoms. What was Jesus' very first message when he came into the fullness of his ministry? He's baptized, the Spirit of God descends on him in power, and he goes from there to preach. And the very first message, the one he continued to preach, was repent for the kingdom of of heaven is at hand. 
Other times we see it, the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is here. It is coming and it is now here. This message of the spiritual kingdom of God in heaven coming to earth and being made known through Jesus was one of his primary messages. And we know that he is opposed from that very moment. He's opposed by the enemy who is trying to destroy his work. His first effort was to try to get Jesus to bow to him, to his authority on earth, while Jesus would be given all authority and all rule and all reign, so he would not do that. When that didn't work, Satan then went to try to destroy him, to kill him. He was against him at every turn. He planted, Satan planted betrayal into Judas. Judas gave him room, preached through that recently. He gave him an opportunity to do that. Satan can't just take that from us. We have to give him that space, give him that room. Judas gave it to him, and so he planted betrayal in order that Jesus would be arrested and then put to death. And Satan must have believed that he won a great victory at that moment, when in reality, he just joined with Jesus to swing open the gates of hell. What men intend for evil, God will turn to his purposes. Does Satan today believe that he can win sons and daughters of this king, away from him to join him? I don't know. I don't know that we need to presume. The reality is the promise of the word, John 10, is that none can be snatched from his hand. None can be pulled from the Father's grip. So if you've put your faith into Jesus and trusted God the Father, you will be eternally secure. And maybe Satan isn't, and maybe he is aware that he cannot snatch us away. But does he care at that moment where the soul goes if he can protect all those souls who are yet to come into the truth? If he can get the church to be deadened to their reality, to fall asleep, to be comatose and just walk through life ineffective, then he believes probably that he is continuing to win this battle. What, What must we do to be woken up? Even if we're unsure, even if in this you say, I don't know, I think I'm fairly aware We should say, Lord, help me. Where I am sleepwalking, where I am blind, where I am deadened, bring me to life, bring me to light, open my eyes. Is there a little red pill I can take? That's a Matrix reference, let's be clear. Here's a prescription. Paul gives a different prescription, a better one. Verse 15, here's what he actually says through 18. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, And make the best use of time because the days are evil. I don't think we have to build an argument against that one to awaken us to that. But make the best use of time. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. This is the prescription. Live carefully. Live wisely. Live with a sense of urgency because time is short If we haven't started to notice that yet, it will happen for every one of you. Where did the years go? The days may be long, but the years are fast. If you're trying to escape reality, stop. Paul then uses uses alcohol as an example, something that affects the mind and affects the body that we can turn to to numb us. And with enough of it, you will be comatose. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Be emptied in order that you would be full. 
More on that later. That deserves an entire sermon. To be ongoingly full of the Spirit. That's the, that's the, uh, the tense in the Greek is an ongoing imperative. Be being filled with the Spirit. So that takes some time. But here's, here's his prescription of what it looks like to wake up. Now, alcohol is just a picture of that that probably many could understand, and if not personally, then from observation. But alcohol is just a representation of any other thing that we could turn to, consume, to numb, to escape, to sleep on the reality of the world. Paul's already listed these. And that's kind of how that chapter started. Verse 3, sexual immorality and impurity. The word here is pornos, where we get pornography. I think next week I will address this because Paul is very clear. There should not be even a hint of sexual immorality among you. And there may not be a more ensnaring, trapping, dangerous, pervasive sin than pornography and sexual immorality in our current culture. And it's really not different except in its expression than it was in Paul's day. And we may have many enslaved and entrapped and bound, deadened, numbed, and asleep and ineffective to the work God has called us to because of this sin. And it is worth addressing, I believe. So I was going to this week, I said, let me flip that to at least give you opportunity to prepare for that and I hope still be here. I don't know what it will be rated. I seek to do it in grace and compassion while also being transparent. It will be rated necessary. Verse four, coarse language and crudeness. I'm moving, gonna move through these pretty quickly. I think we could, I could build a case pretty strongly. Uh, Paul warns, let us not, do not be deceived with empty words. Think about the movies or the TV shows or the events that we watch. But is that any different than the constant political chatter or the incessant blather of social media? Any, any of these things can just numb us. They can be escapes. We can become deadened. We can be asleep in them. Did you notice that right next to sexual immorality, where many of us would say, absolutely, I don't disagree with you, Ben. That is a pervasive issue of bondage and slavery in our world. But right next to it is covetousness, greed, consumerism, right next to it. And I think this is even greater than sexual immorality and the trap of pornography on some. I think consumerism in our culture may be the most numbing, deadening, sleepwalk-inducing idolatry that we must battle. In fact, everything is idolatry. That's what Paul says. Every one of these sins is idolatry. And what is simply what is idolatry? Looking towards someone or something else to somewhat save us, to fill us, to satisfy, to bring us hope or peace or joy. And so consumerism puts out there for us a picture of fulfillment. And that will look different for any one of us. That if we can attain that picture, we will be saved. We will have peace 
and joy and satisfaction and happiness. And we look into the world and see that nobody has found it through consumerism, and we think, I will be the one. And we'll end with probably destroyed relationships, destroyed families, greater depression, and greater emptiness than ever before. I said I wasn't going to preach these. Okay, anything, anything that we could turn to, to blind us, to deaden us, to numb us, to escape the reality. That's what Paul is speaking here. Wake up, church. Wake up to what God has done, who Jesus is, and what the Holy Spirit is doing. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of Satan are real. Jesus said it this way, Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. The more you try to attain from this world, the more pain that's going to cause, the more that's going to be ripped from your grasp. For where your treasure is, though, there your heart will be. That's the danger. You cannot serve God and any other thing. He uses money but actually more than money, the treasures of this world as that contrast. No one can serve those two masters. This is verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all other things will be added to you. And then in chapter 16, he said, For what will it profit a man if he gained the whole world if he forfeits his soul? Anything else that we believe we need to fulfill us to satisfy us. If we need something, God the Father knows our need. Before we even ask, he will provide. That's his promise. And if we don't need it, may it be stripped away. May it blow away like chaff. Blow through the caverns of my soul, Holy Spirit. A phrase that I think we'll sing in just a few moments. Clean house, Lord. The reality is this. The kingdom of heaven is real and it is ruled by a living king. This is how Paul began in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. Christ Jesus, who has been raised from the dead, is seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places. He is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And God put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You want to be full? You want to know life to the full? Come into this kingdom. Come to know this king. He is not only alive, he is fully awake, he is active, and he is all powerful. And yet he is loving and he is good. Walk in love, Ephesians 5, 2, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the key to being awoken. Right here. We don't invite Jesus into our lives. We come into his If the nature of your prayers is God, come. God, show up. God, do something today. God, give me this, please. We need to shift those. You are not seeing Jesus on the throne. And I believe you're still on your own throne that you've erected. And you're asking him to come into 
your throne room, into your kingdom and work. And it's a blindness that the enemy has put over us. Our kingdoms must die. We come into his. The nature of our prayers should be, Jesus King, open my eyes. Show me what you're doing. Let me join in. How can I serve you? Where are you sending me? I want to hear your voice. I want to know you more fully. I repent. I confess. Help me, Lord. We don't invite Jesus to come into our life. Now, if you've said a prayer like that, I'm not trying to bring any kind of condemnation or shame. The enemy will try to do that. I haven't done it the right way. I haven't said the right thing. No, 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 no. Jesus, come into my life and save me can be a beautiful prayer. I'm talking about the nature of our ongoing prayers. Is it possible that we haven't come into his kingdom, that we've just continued to invite him to do something in ours? We cannot ask Jesus to bless our many kingdoms. It will not work. Verse 10 and verse 17 of chapter 5. Try, not, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We can know him. We can discern it. This is our call. We can ask him. Open our eyes. Awaken us. We don't need to make this more complicated than it is. We've already said it. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Lord Jesus, we repent. We confess. We turn. We turn to you. We bow to you. We come into your presence. Your kingdom is at hand. I see it. I need it. I need to see it more. Jesus said in John 12, 27, but for this purpose I have come in this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up on earth, will draw all peoples to myself. That's the purpose. Find out what pleases the Lord. Try to discern what his will is. It's right here. It's been laid out. Your kingdom come, God. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Anything that is done to destroy the work of the enemy, to advance into the darkness and be light, to see his kingdom expand. That is his will. That is what's pleasing to him. He said to Peter, Matthew 16, I tell you, Peter, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Think of the gates of hell. Now, they may be open, releasing the forces of the enemy. You may think of it that way, but you also may think of it as strongholds established in various places, built up, and the gates of those strongholds, the gates of hell itself, will not be able to prevail against the power of the Holy Spirit at work through his people in the name and authority of Jesus. But before we can ever, and this is a whole other sermon, before we could ever bind the demonic forces, before we ever see the kingdom of heaven expanded and multiplied, the gates of hell prevailed against, before any of that happens, our many kingdoms must die. They must be destroyed. And it begins with us climbing off the toy thrones that we have erected in true repentance. My deepest concern and I'm not alone in this, as we consider the church as a whole, whether it's the church in the West, the church in a region, my deepest concern isn't that the church is asleep and doesn't know how to be woken up. It's that we are as awake as we want to be. The world, the enemy, to use that Silly matrix analogy. You just take this blue pill 
and you'll forget all about this. Everything will be as it was before. You can remain in your dreamlike state. And it's been offered to us, and I think many of us have taken it. We've looked into what it could be, and we've said, I'm not ready for that. I don't want to change that much. I don't need that. And I'm going to keep praying for Jesus to come into my kingdom and bless it. I hope that works. I hope that's enough. Is it possible, church, that we are as awake as we want to be? We know exactly what it would take to be living in the kingdom of Jesus with the power and authority of Jesus, and we don't want it. That means too much change. That means laying down too much. That means surrendering too often. That means serving and giving ourselves, pouring ourselves out too much. Jesus said, John 3, 19, this is the judgment, light has come into the world, but people loved darkness rather than light. That's the judgment. The the light of the world was killed by this world. It did not want him. Why do we think anything has changed? To come into this light, to wake up and to rise up, will change everything. We have an enemy who wants to keep us right where we are, slumbering, comatose, ineffective. But it is not why we've been created. It's not what we've been called to. And it's not how we've been commissioned. And it's not where life is found. Wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Lord, may any of these words that are yours be yours. And may they land with your church in conviction, not in condemnation, and in and with hope and life and encouragement. Because you, King, are worth it. King Jesus, help us. Let me read a prayer. I'll invite the team to come up and help lead us into response. Let me read a prayer from one of my favorites, A.W. Tozer. He often prayed like this. This prayer is captured at the end of the first chapter in pursuit of God. And maybe you would pray along with me in your heart or as you hear this. If this resonates, may it lead us into a response of singing, of praise, of coming to the table in communion. Come forward. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, this meal, there's elements there in the back or for you. We do this every single week as a reminder because we're so quick to forget who our God is, what Jesus has done, and who we are in him. So come and be reminded of your identity in him and pray as you come, Lord, awaken me. If that can be your prayer, awaken me. Here's Tozer's prayer and then I'll add mine and then we'll sing. Oh God, I have tasted thy goodness and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need of further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. Oh God, the triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me thy glory, I pray, so that I may know you indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me and say to my soul, rise up, awaken, and then give me grace to rise and follow to follow thee up from this misty lowland where I have been wandering so long 
In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, forgive us for living our lives as if we're seated on the throne. Forgive us for spending the majority of our time and energy, emotion, resources to build up our own kingdoms. Jesus, you are the one true king, the king of kings and Lord of lords. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We commit ourselves to serving you and to trying to find out what pleases you. So show us, Lord. Teach us, Lord. Fill us, Lord. May the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. <laughs>